The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Hi there, and welcome to One Sweet Dream. This is part two of our epic journey into the Beatles' final single, Now and Then. I'm your host, Diane Erickson, and I'm joined on this adventure by One Sweet Dream's remarkable researcher, Hallie Ryan. If you're just tuning in now, I highly recommend starting with part one because it provides the grounding for our central thesis of this two-part episode. It's kind of amusing to talk about having a central thesis when this all began as a fun special edition episode about a song. But I should have realized this conversation would never be quick or simple, since I believe this song, combined with its two anthology counterparts, change the arc of the Beatles' narrative and rewrite the story we know. This two-part saga heavily focuses on John Lennon because he's the mastermind behind these songs. They are his statements. With these songs, he tells his side of the story, beyond the posturing and the public personas. There is a reason McCartney has been so doggedly determined to release this song, and I don't think it's because he just wants a final hit, though the man does love a hit. An aspect of him, I find, 
endearing and inspiring and a lesson in never giving in. But I don't think this quest to release this song is about that. It's much more profound than that. He's allowing Lennon's voice and experience to be heard and his perspective to be part of the final Beatles chapter. To quote the X-Files, the truth is out there and it's found in Lennon's songs. While I don't consider these anthology songs true Beatles songs, that they lack the magical chemistry found in those, I don't consider them not Beatles songs either because they do live in the Beatles world and I think they serve as epilogues to their story, offering a more accurate portrayal of their complex journey. And Lennon's voice was required to tell this story because he's the one in his heartbreak who went out and told the world the Beatles were over, that he no longer believed. And despite the fact that he walked it back quickly, he left that legacy. And the thing is, it wasn't true. And no matter how much McCartney, Harrison, or Starr talk about how much they loved each other or loved Lennon or loved the Beatles, they can't heal that. It requires Lennon's voice to heal that. And he does through these songs because they tell a different story that he didn't walk away and never look back. In fact, the bonds were never broken. I'm not trying to tell a more lovely story. This is the reality. Before it was the last Beatles song, now and then was John Lennon sitting alone at a piano singing to a tape recorder. It was his words, thoughts, his message. By bringing the song into existence as a produced track, McCartney delivers that message. He isn't creating it. He's only creating the notion that we take this particular song seriously as a last word, a core truth. He knows as well as anyone that when John spoke through his music, he didn't speak lightly, a fact that's evident when you listen to any of his demos, no matter how raw. Suggesting that McCartney is using these songs to rewrite the narrative is so wildly disrespectful to their partnership, to John's truth, and to McCartney's stewardship of their story. These songs ended up in the capable hands of the Beatles for a reason, and releasing them as Beatles songs is a way of fusing them into their legacy. Collectively, these three songs tell what happened after the breakup. Deep love persisted as did a passionate yearning to create together. While I haven't heard the final version of Now and Then, I am familiar with the fragile beauty of the demo, which is filled with longing and regret and hope. I was struck when listening closely to Lennon's demo that it's so clear he was still at the top of his game in terms of songwriting and vocals, so beautiful. I hope that they can retain that emotion. We shall see. I certainly think they treated Free as a Bird and Real Love with the utmost care and love. You can hear the love in the harmonies. In this episode, we explore the captivating Real Love and, of course, Now and Then. Throughout this episode, I share some demos that are fairly intimate and personal, and I, I did consider that. But I chose to share them because I think they do reflect the reality of Lennon behind the scenes. And I don't think they expose anything other than the fact that Lennon missed his friends deeply and was thinking about them. And this is an important part of the story. 
When McCartney talks glowingly about his partnership with Lennon, it is essential to know that Lennon felt that way too. In fact, this is the untold story, is of Lennon's enduring love. These songs provide a beautiful and generous revelation that doesn't diminish John's love for Yoko or Sean or Julian or his new life. It just shows that the bonds with the Beatles were never broken. I can't wait to hear the final version of Now and Then. Regardless of how it turns out, its mere existence allows us to reevaluate the epic Beatles story, and that's a very good thing. So with that, we are all set for this episode. Let's dive in as we continue our discussion picking up on real love. Here we go. Real love. Okay, we just talked about Freeze a Bird. We talked about John's mindset at that time, that he and Paul were estranged, that John went through this period where he was semi-retired. There's been talk of some depression, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then um, there seems to be some longing that could connect to the Beatles. And then we move on to real love. And that one actually has potentially a stronger connection to the Beatles and specifically to McCartney. It started in terms of origins. We don't really know, but it has been suggested that it might have been started in connection to a project that John and Yoko talked about, which was a musical called The Ballad of John and Yoko, which they planned, but it never came to fruition. So this may have started as a song for that project. But John worked on it over the years, over the next two years, and it had many, many iterations. And really, it ended up being a combination of two different bits of songs, two germinating song ideas, Baby Make Love to You and Real Life. And he combined those to the final version, which is Real Love. And so let's talk about that for a second, shall we? Let's do it. First of all, I love this song. I think it's a tremendous song. And um, it's interesting to see how much John works on his songs and evolves them. You know, it seems like Paul, they have very different methodologies when it comes to their songwriting. Paul seems to write songs fast when he gets them out quickly. He knows how he wants it, too. He's got it in his head. Yeah. Like he's just kind of like downloads the songs very quickly and then maybe takes some time to finish off the lyrics. Whereas John really works these songs and develops them. And this went through many lives. He stays committed. With the ones he cares about, he stays committed till he kind of gets gets what he wants to say out of him. And to great effect, songs that he sits with and really develops end up being usually his best songs. Yeah. And I love this song. It's very Lennon-esque. <laughs> Well, it's very Lennon-esque, but it's very Lennon-esque of that period, too. Yeah. You know, for all John loves to talk about him being a rock and roller, 
he was writing a lot of these like mid-tempo ballads at this time that were nostalgic and a little bit forlorn and longing, but also incredibly beautiful. And the lyrics, the lyrics are just very John Lennon. (laughs) I find that I hear John's voice more through real love than I do through some of the bits in Free as a Bird. They're more consistent with the messages John had in his music, the song Love or All You Need Is Love. He had this for Double Fantasy. He could have used it. He could have used it, and yet he didn't. And I just wonder if it's because tonally this song is a little bit different. It it would not fit on that album. Right, kind of in the conversation style they were talking about. Even in terms of mood, like these three songs actually are very, they're slow, um, they're thoughtful, they're nostalgic, you know, the beautiful melodies. I love all three of these songs, but they are very, a very different mood that John was in, reflective. John on Double Fantasy is surprisingly quite positive in some of his songs. I mean, Beautiful Boy, Woman starting over like he's pretty upbeat yeah yeah and you can see how real love just wouldn't have fit on that album so that's that's probably why he didn't include it even though it seems like john liked the song a lot because he kept working on it i'd love to know whether this was one of the songs that he was actually holding back to work on with paul or was a contender for bringing to paul to, to see can we improve this at all could we work through this together yeah yeah so that that's the origins and the history of the song. We could go much more deeply into it, but that's not really what's relevant here. We want to talk about how this might fit with the Beatles story. And this song, you can go, anybody can go and listen to the, the various iterations of the song on uh, YouTube, but there is one iteration of it that really sounds like it could be to Paul. Right. You like know, Paul- Paul is on his mind. It's almost like a stream of consciousness, you know, because he's like, call him on the phone, call him on the phone. And we just talked about the fact that they are estranged at this point, we think, or they don't have an easy relationship by this point in 1977, 78. And so he's talking about that. And he refers to somebody living on a farm and having a baby and a baby on the way. And given the timing of it, which is 1977, it fits with McCartney's life situation. It does. and. And, and, and says, was I just dreaming or was it only yesterday? <laughs> da, da, da. Yes, it has the famous yesterday word, John's obsession. As I s- said, when I see yesterday or wings, I perk up and think, hmm. And I've always believed that that version, it's not necessarily that I believed he was writing to Paul, more like Paul was on his mind at that particular time. That's how I feel too. It's it's not that I think he sat down and wrote a song for Paul McCartney. No. I think that he's just processing thoughts and feelings. And what I think Paul is part of those thoughts and feelings. And all of these songs seem to suggest a bit of nostalgia. Yeah. And it's not that unusual to think of. It's 1977. It's only been seven years since the breakup. In the first few years post-breakup, everybody was incredibly busy. And so I don't think it's unusual that John, when he finally slows down, starts to reflect on what the fuck happened, (laughs) you know, like, and, and to think about it and for it to come through in his music. So I don't find that at all unusual. 
No, no, I don't either. And I think even in 1973, 74, 75, John did a lot of processing then, but he was still also very busy. Yeah. And he had so much going on all the time. At this point in 77, he's really just in the Dakota. So there's not a lot of distractions. Which is probably why it's more depressed or longing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Feels isolated. Yeah. Versus the number nine dream, which is exuberant. It's like hopeful. It's exciting. You know, yeah. it's there's momentum to that. Whereas these ones are all sitting in this different pocket. So anyways, recently we found something that some crazy, amazing fan did some additional digging and tip of the hat to this, I guess, tumbler called a blue fox in a wild wood. Yes, we love crazy, obsessive, amazing. <laughs> right. And by the way, thank you. Yes. Excellent. Excellent detective work. Yes. Yes. And so what this fan did was they traced when this song was being developed to the newspaper of the Times, because the song actually refers to the Daily News. There is mention of a cruise the Daily News. And so this person looked it up and lo and behold, there's a photo of Paul and Linda with a headline of expecting a little beetle. Oh yeah. So basically the song reflects the news of the day. Yeah. So it's the Daily News. And then the first um, little blurb says that Merle Oberon and her husband, Robert Wolders, who are so crazy about cruises, they'd book passage on the Flying Dutchman, given the chance, are still sailing the seas on the QE2. There's an article about that. And then below that, there's a picture of Paul and Linda and the little byline under it says, Linda and Paul will be toasting number three pretty soon. And then it talks about how they're expecting. And so when you look at the lyrics of this, it's woke up this morning, blues around my head, ain't no need to ask the reason why, went to the kitchen, lit a cigarette, Blue the smoke rings in the sky. Just got to let it go. Just got to let it go. Mm, it's real life. It's real. It's real life. Let go. Let go. Like the mighty river flow from the ocean to the shore. Let it go. The next section is about the Daily News. Picked up the paper, read the Daily News. Nothing doing anyway. Same old BS. Do, do, do. Cruise. Na na na, let it go, let it go. What am I doing now? <laughs> he seems to get lost in the song. Why don't I let it go? Why don't you let it go? It's real life. And then he goes back to the mighty river flow. And then he says, oh, uh, rock your balls. And then he goes on to. Why must we be alone? It's real love. It's real. And then he goes on again about this. And then later, was I only dreaming or was it only yesterday? I used to hold you in my arms and now a baby and another on the way. La 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 farm. Was I just dreaming? Was it only yesterday? I used to hold you in my arms and now a baby. How must we be 
those are some of the lyrics. It seems like he's read the newspaper. It, this may be a stream of consciousness. Was I just dreaming or was it only yesterday? And then I used to hold you in my arms. That may be connected to the dreaming and Everly Brothers. Yeah, the Everly Brothers song, All I Have to Do is Dream. And now Baby and Another on the Way, La 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 Farms. But then this, Why Must We Be Alone? And then, if it don't feel right, don't do it and just call him on the phone. If it don't feel right, don't do it. Just call him on the phone. And so that sort of reflects this estrangement. Yeah. That, like, why must we be alone? Why must we be separate? And just kind of how unfortunate it is that they're in this situation where it's like, it's hard to even face calling each other, or at least it is on John's end. Like you think about how close they were for so long in the early days and it must just be so painful that. There's so much got... between them that yeah. needs to be resolved. But the intriguing part is how much he wants to do it. Yeah. There are accounts of people saying that when Paul was writing the song Arrow Through Me, that John was on his mind then. It's kind of like they so feel wounded by each other. They do. I think the world understands that Paul was wounded. I don't think it's understood how wounded John was because he fronts more. He was willing to be vulnerable about a lot of things. But I yeah. think potentially his unwillingness to be vulnerable about this, to me, suggests how important it is to him. Oh, I 1000% agree. Like that's, that's the soft spot, you know? Yeah. And what he's not willing to show. It's very like self-soothing. It's real life. It's real life. Let the mighty river flow. It just sounds like he's talking himself through emotions. Yeah. Let the emotions flow and let it go. Yeah. And it, it actually connects to memories that we talked about earlier. It's, it's that yeah. same thing. Like he, he wants to let go of things. It's very personal and, you know, it's kind of like reading somebody's journal, yeah. but it's out there. And I think the only thing that it gives us insight into is how much he still cared yeah. and how seeing Paul still was able to have an impact on him. Yeah. Well, and like we always say, John is not ever neutral <laughs> when it no. comes to Paul McCartney. It's, he's got some kind of feeling one way or the other. So. Yeah. And that's all this kind of proves to me is that when he yeah. sees things about Paul, it impacts him. It's on his mind. He gets upset about things. As you said, it seems like he has to self-soothe and just say like, let it go. That was the past. And yeah. on this podcast, often we talk about them being this great love story, a platonic love story. But essentially, as George Martin said, it was a very complicated relationship, but also profound. And as much as they tried to leave each other, I don't think they fully could. Yeah. So at some point, Paul made his way into this song, whether it started off as a song about John and Yoko, when it was real life, Paul made his way into this song and then it continued to evolve. Yeah. And then real love reminds me of the song love, which ties it more to Yoko, this idea of like, love is real, uh, real is love. Yeah. Yeah. Love is needing to be loved. Yeah, love is feeling, feeling love. You know, it's sort of that circular connection to real. Yeah, these are the things that make it real. 
it, you know, when you look at the final lyrics, when we don't know whether or not John would have stuck with these lyrics, but they are so John. I love them. All, all my little plans and schemes lost like some forgotten dreams. Seems all I really was doing was waiting for you. That's beautiful. And he's such a planner and schemer. He is such a schemer. And that is not the traditional view of John. John kind of is just like shooting from the hip and, you know, like living in the moment. Yeah, I think people don't think he has to plan and scheme because he just goes out and gets his way all the time. He just shouts and people give him whatever he wants. And like, he's true to his thought at the moment. Whereas, as you said, like, John is somebody who plans and schemes. And I love knowing that. And he talks about that in London Remembers, that he maneuvered to get Klein in. And Yoko, of course, wants him to delete that because she sees that as a negative. And John is very open about it. He's like, that's what I do. I maneuver. Yeah, he's you know? like, no, that's what I did. I, I worked hard at that. And as much as we talk about like the, the Greece or the UK or the Irish house where all the Beatles are going to live with their extended group and their entourage. He gave that a lot of thought. That wasn't just a, a whimsy one night. It was like John really thought about that, how Julian and the kids would be educated. He had plans for the whole inner circle. It was the main Beatles and their families and then their inner circle people and Brian would be there. And he was kind of had all these levels, it seems like. He had put so much energy into how can this work for all of us? Right. And it was like, it, his mind was going to, how do we create a community where all the important people to me are around? And we're all happy and safe. We're all happy and safe. Exactly. When we look at the lyrics, that one's very John. And it's interesting in the version, the original version, it's why must we be alone? It's real love. And, you know, if you think of Who's he talking to? Is it, I mean, I think that John and Yoko were kind of living separate lives at this time, yeah. even though they were living together. So it could refer to her. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they are still traveling together sometimes, or they do. Yeah, that's true. That's true. 77 and 79, they do take some trips together. In other words, they are not completely alone. So yeah, it could be referring yeah. to somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm suggesting. I mean, I think John and Yoko are pretty up and down during those years from what we can tell, but they have periods of, of closeness and family closeness. Yep. Yeah. Is that when they go to Japan? Yeah. Yeah. They look, they look good then. They do. Yeah. And but John, John looks happy on that trip. He does. It's a very sweet little family trip, but anyways, the, the, there is somebody that he's talking to saying that, why do we have to be alone? And that switched of course, into the final version, which is no need to be alone, which is an evolution. It's a more positive. Instead of yeah. asking, why must we be alone? It's kind of like, he's got an answer. We don't need to be alone. Yeah, it, it really develops into like more of a confident statement. Like, no, no need. There's no exactly. need to be afraid. And that's one of the elements to this song that I find pretty compelling is there's a defiance to it in the final version. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's real love. Yes, it's real love. It's real. We don't need to be alone. We don't need to be afraid. Yeah, it's like you he's know? made... He's made a decision. He's moved through it. The earlier versions were his insecurities, like, why must we be alone and, you know, let it go and all this. And then by the end, it's like, no, it's kind of, it suggests almost a plan. Like you said, he's made a decision. Yeah. And I love that because to me, free as a bird, I feel like a little bit, like, I feel like there's someone kind of stuck. It feels yes. like, yes. 
Like people aren't moving forward. It's like stuck in a circle. It's romantic and it's positive. Yeah. You know, like don't need to be alone. No need to be alone. It's real love. Yes, it's real love. It's like he is defiant and confident. He has decided that yes, it's real love. And it's interesting because sometimes he's like that about John and Yoko and and their love story. And I'm not entirely sure why he's so defensive, except for, I guess they got so much pushback um, at the start and they were so crazy for a while that everybody was like, what's up with this relationship? So maybe that's why he could be defiant about him and Yoko. Yeah. Um, But it also makes me think of an interview that John did in 1972 in early in January, 1972, when he was talking to Howard Smith and I'm just going to quote from it. Okay. And uh, fun fact here, when John was talking uh, about this at one point, he was humming along to maybe I'm amazed, which was playing in the background on the radio. So that's the setup. He's humming to maybe I'm amazed while saying this. And John says, it's like they were playing all you need is love earlier. And I was saying to Yoko, I still believe all you need is love. But I don't believe that just saying it is going to do it. I still believe in the fact that love is what we all need, that it's what makes us all sorts of desperate, frenetic, or whatever the word, neurotic, et cetera, et cetera. But I still believe that there's many ways of getting to that situation, you know. I mean, there's a lot of changes in society to come before we ever get to a state of even realizing that love is what we need. But I still believe in it. And I know I've read cracks about, oh, the Beatles saying, all you need is love. It didn't work for them. But nothing will ever break the love we have for each other. And I still believe all you need is love, mm-hmm. which is so sweet. Like this is, um, you know, John and Paul have got their, their big battle in 1971. And this is January 1972. John is out in the public saying that, no, no, I still believe in all you need is love and nothing will ever break the love that we have for each other. That's the John I love. Yeah. And to me, there's echoes of that in this song. And like, of course, we have no idea what he actually means. And this is just my reading of it. But, you know, I feel a kind of defiance, like what we had was real too. It was real and it was important. Yeah. And just the fact that he adds the simple word, Yes. It just adds, he sounds emphatic. Yes. It's real love. It's real love. And it makes me wonder if at any point somebody said it wasn't real or questioned the validity of it, you know? Yeah. Well, I feel like in this song, he came to the realization and the belief that yes, it is real. It is, but it it sounds like it doesn't even sound to me like he is convincing himself. It's like he's made that decision. And to me, he is being very confident and telling the world yeah, that yes, it is real love. Yes. You know, it fits with the story of John and Yoko. So that may be all that it is. But I also think it fits with the story of the Beatles, that the four of them were this great love story. And <laughs> at some point, the intensity of the, the, the Beatles of the Lennon-McCartney relationship kind of caused it to explode. But they never lost the chemistry, the bond, the feelings. And to me, this may echo the fact that John has come full circle. And I don't even think it was full circle because I think he knew this in 1974, 73, 74, as we talked about. 
but it's something that I think they all circled yeah. uh, is the trauma of the breakup and the bitter feelings and then circled around to, yes, it was real. You know, what we had was really important. Yeah. And when he says, don't need to be alone, no need to be alone, you know, even with all of them having new significant others, et cetera, I imagine they felt alone yeah. without each other. Well, I think that that's what he's referring to yeah. is that we're all on our own. I mean, Paul's in a band. But John barely considers that a band. He considers it. He says that. He's like, oh, it's Paul McCartney in a backing band. It doesn't matter who they are. So he still sees it as Paul on his own. I think probably they think of each other as on their own if they are not together. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I I, I have to imagine it. They just must have felt lost because we look at all the pictures of how they are just like layered upon layered of touching and next to each other. And like, they're just so close to each other all the time, all four Beatles. Yeah. And yeah. And they look very happy. They look so happy together. So it must have just been so discombobulating to be blown apart like that. And then be out in the world. And, and also they're so famous. They're so isolated. They really needed each other. Yeah. Well, they, they just don't have a lot of people who they can trust. You yeah. Know? And so we look at free as a bird and that that's kind of, he's circling whatever happened to the life that we once knew. And then we look at the versions of real life, the early versions of that. And he's saying like, why must we be alone? Why must like, why, why did this happen? Why, why do we have to be on our own? And then, but even then he, he was saying it's real love. It's real, you know? So then he, even then he was pretty, defined about the fact that what he believed to be real is real. Even in number nine dream, he goes, so long ago, was it in a dream? Was it just a dream? I know. Yes, I know. It, it seems so very real, seems so real to me. Yeah. So it's this, you know, I, I get this even with Paul these days, not so much these days, but in his interviews, kind of second guessing, like, I so believed in what we had. And John in the seventies was a confusing character and he made me doubt it for a while. And John calling their partnership a myth. You get the sense that John became very disillusioned and it was like, he became so disillusioned that he had to sort of like negate everything. Something so hurt yeah. that I had to like distance myself from everything. Like if this is false, then everything was false. You know, yeah. it seems like throughout the seventies, John went through this process of kind of walking away from something that he intensely believed in and being heartbroken about that, which we hear in God, yeah. he doesn't believe in anything. And by 74, where they are reconciling and reconnecting, he writes number nine dream. And, and it's like, was it just a yeah. dream? It seems so very real, seems so real to me. So here he's questioning, was it real? Like, it seemed real. Uncertainty. Yeah, but he wants it to be. And then it goes, dream, dream away, magic in the air. I believe, yes, I believe. What more can I say? Throughout that song, he starts to reconfirm his belief, you know? Yeah. And this one, it's like he's done the loop again and just decided, yes, it was real. It is real. Yeah. And I'm telling you. Listen. And I'm telling you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so they don't know what this is about but they know a hell of a lot more than we do about what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And so if there's certain elements that did apply to the Beatles, it must have seemed very sweet to get this song 
that that may have had a connection to them saying, yes, it was real. I knew it. I believed in it. You know, yeah. it was real love. Yeah. And it's almost, you know, it's kind of like he always knew it. He just had to work through some things. <laughs> he did. And unfortunately, if you look at the interviews from 1980, you know, he completely contradicts that on some days and then some days he, I he know. seems to, you know, he's very, very difficult. But again, let's look to the music. Yeah. I think the problem is they never know whether or not it's about Yoko or it's about them. But through the Beatles magic, they probably had a sense that it was about them as well. Maybe it was about all of them. It was real with Yoko. It was real with his love was great for all of them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think even when he talks about bless you in 1974, he talks about Yoko and the Beatles. Yes. He says that he'll be tied to her deeply like he is to the Beatles. Yeah. If they fully separate, if they are really going on their own way. Yeah. To me, that's just, that's the level of importance he places on his relationships with the Beatles and how much they mean to him. I mean, it's equivalent with Yoko, you know, it's, it's dear special loves, just like his love with Yoko. Right. So I love that thought that real love Uh, you know, was applicable to them. And if we look at the version history, Paul is in there at some point. Yes. That's real love. We love it. And then moving on to now and then. Ooh. Yes. We've been building up to this the whole time. from Giles Martin that's just come out. And poor Giles just lost his mother, I just read. I know, I know it. I saw that too. Yeah, and he commented about it in one of the interviews. It was sweet that he was still willing to talk. It must be, the song must be meaningful to him that he went out and still was willing to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. But here's a quote. I think this was in People Magazine. And the author said, Martin is unable to confirm the song's lyrical significance to McCartney, but he has his suspicions. He says, I do feel as though now and then is a love letter to Paul written by John. I mean, I've never really asked Paul about it. And I'm not sure whether Paul would say, oh, that's definitely it, because he wouldn't want to second guess John. But that's the sense I get. And I get the feeling that's why Paul was so determined to finish it. Mm. I love that. Yes. Thank you, Giles. Thank you for just spelling it out. And, you know, as somebody who's a real insider, it lends a lot of credibility Yes, to the point of view that we were going to make a couple of days before you said this. So thank you for just putting it out there. And it's like, okay, great. Somebody I in feel the like it gives uh, like our work and the work you do on your podcast, just extra credit, extra credit. <laughs> exactly. I'll take it. And it's interesting that he said, I never really asked Paul about it. And I'm not sure whether Paul would say, oh, that's definitely like, it's interesting that he's sitting there with McCartney and he doesn't say, hey, I'm I'm getting the sense that this is actually to you. I guess it's kind of like maybe guys, maybe it's such an intimate thing to say when you're yeah. looking at 
a man and potentially a love letter between these two. Like it's very private to them. Yeah. And yet when he's sitting there in the booth, I mean, did he not just say, this is what it seems like, Paul? Could you please confirm it? Well, Paul might've just looked at him and smiled. Well, probably. Part of me thought, I wonder if Paul and Giles talked about this and Paul doesn't want to say it. So he's using Giles as a mouthpiece, you know, like this is a way of Paul basically confirming it is allowing Giles to say this kind of thing. Yeah. But it, like, it's very on brand for McCartney to just not say anything and for nobody to ask him anything and everybody just to suspect it. Yeah. Everybody just kind of draws their own tentative conclusions. <laughs> And the fact that Paul doesn't talk about things, he's so intensely private, Yeah, you know? And I, I think when you look at the lyrics of this song and you look at Paul's great determination to get this song out. And, it's to, come, get it, and to get it done right. And to know? get it right, done right with sensitivity, exactly. It, it suggests that it's deeply meaningful to him. Yeah. And Giles understands that. He says, that's the sense I get. And I get the feeling that's why Paul was so determined to finish it. Yeah, I think that that's our feeling as well. But let's dive into this song a little bit. Let's. Okay, so it seems to have been written in 1979. I don't know, there could be earlier versions, but that's when people seem to trace it back to 79. And so we probably would never know about any connection to Paul if it weren't for Carl Perkins. Right. And his account. So Carl Perkins is the one who's sort of He's a major player. He's a well. He's a major player, but also thank you, Carl, for spilling the beans on this and giving this yes. uh, this really important information. Yes. Okay. This appeared. I, I posted this on um, Twitter a few months ago, or whenever the news of the album first came out. It was in a Goldmine article. It's a great find because I had heard the story, but I had not seen the actual article clipping. So I love the, I love that that was found. Right. <laughs> right. That we actually have the evidence because yeah. I too had always seen it. And, and there are accounts of Carl, you can go on YouTube and there's accounts of Carl telling this story, but for some reason, these accounts kind of leave out the most important part of this story, but he is on record telling the story in Goldmine. Yeah. But if anybody wants to go and look, I'll retweet what I put out, which was a picture of the actual magazine. Okay, so let me go through what actually happened. People magazine did a pretty good summary of it. Okay, so this is the backstory, is that after Lennon was murdered, George Martin invited McCartney to come and record at George Martin Studios on the Caribbean island of Montserrat. So that's basically where he did a lot of tug of war and pipes of peace. And I always find that so sweet. You know, Paula said that George was really like a second father uh, yes. to him and they were incredibly close. And I just, I find that so soothing that he, he took care of Paul basically. Yes. Yes. I love that. And I love that on the day that the news broke, I love that Paul and George Martin were together. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Give a sense of comfort to both of them. Yeah. And so anyways, he's on this island and, and they start to invite various guests on the album. And one of the guests was Carl Perkins, who was one of Paul's early heroes. And he was a hero of, you know, all the Beatles, of George and John as well. And he joined him to do a song 
on the album, which I love. And I guess they had a lovely time together. And when Perkins was leaving, he was very grateful for all of Paul's hospitality and Paul and Linda's hospitity. And I guess he had a wonderful time and he channeled it into a song. And so the song that he wrote is actually called My Old Friend. And it's a gorgeous song. It's like, oh, oh my God, you realize how good these guys are, you know? Beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's like, it just flowed out of him one morning. Yes. Like how talented are these guys, you know? Crazy, crazy. Oh, beautiful. Anyways, so he went and played it to Paul and Linda and it had these lines. And if we never meet again, this side of life in a little while over yonder where there is peace and quiet, my old friend, won't you think about me every now and then? So those are some of the lines. And then according to Perkins, McCartney got really emotional hearing this last verse and excused himself. And so Perkins, I guess, was surprised and apologized to Linda for upsetting Paul. And she insisted that it's okay. It was a good thing because she said that he really needed to have a release, that he hadn't actually had a release since John died. And she said that the reason that he got so upset was the lyrics echoed Lennon's last sentiments to Paul during their final visit. She said, those were the last words that John Lennon said to Paul in the hallway, that John patted him on his shoulder and said, think about me every now and then, old friend. And so she thought it was the catharsis that he needed. And she thanked Carl for this and said, but how did you know? There's just two people in the world that know what John said to Paul. Me and Paul are the only two that know that. And Perkins says that he didn't really have an answer, that it seemed on the border of the supernatural. And later he said that McCartney really feels that Lennon sent me that song. So from that account, we learn that the last words from John to Paul were, think about me every now and then, old friend. So, I mean, that is incredibly spooky, given that song, you know? It literally, like, is John communicating through Carl to speak to Paul, you know? And I just think it's just amazingly magic and cool that... It's one of their idols who's doing this. Yes, yes. That's a great point that John would choose one of their great idols. And and Paul would probably think about that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't some rando new musician, you know? It's somebody they listen to for hours and hours together. That they have an emotional tie yeah. to. That comes up and this song flows to him that morning. And he just happens. Like, imagine this, that... The very last words were the exact same words that end up in this song. It's crazy. Oh, chills. I mean, chilling. Yeah. And so from that, we do learn that those were the last words that now and then is meaningful to Paul. Yes. Yeah. So that was actually just extrapolating from the People magazine summary of it. But let's actually look at what he says in the, because there's some additional details that are kind of funny in the uh, Goldmine article. You're going to read the girl. You're freaking me out. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. He seems like a doll. He talks about flying down there and Paul and Linda met him in the airfield. And then he said, well, it was something that I'll never live long enough to forget. It happened in February of 1981. And as the world all knows, 
and never will forget in December of 1980 when John Lennon was taken away from us. And so this was the following year in February. Oh my God, I didn't realize it was, no, this, this would have been. Yeah. February of 81. Really? Yeah. Oh my God. I didn't realize it was that close. Yeah. Okay. I wrote the song about and for Paul McCartney. I did it because he was so kind to invite me down to this beautiful island of Montserrat with Stevie Wonder. Ringo was there. Just had a wonderful time. I flew down. I love that that Ringo was there too. You know what? It is like it soothes my soul to know that when they were all brokenhearted that Ringo and Paul and George Martin were all together and Stevie Wonder was there and Carl Perkins. It just seems like they were really rallying together. Good support. And obviously Linda and their kids were all there too. Yeah. But anyways, I flew down by myself. Uh, Paul and Linda met me with a Jeep on the center airfield and took me across the mountains where we were like kids again. And it was a wonderful time. I didn't want to cry when I left after staying down there. And I'm a big cry baby. I can't talk about it. I just thought, what would happen? So uh, the night before, I just wrote how I felt on the Isle of Montserrat. Forget a country boy with a guitar and a song. You invited me and you treated me like kin. And you've given me a reason to go on. So my old friend, think about me every now and then. Can you come down to Montserrat? I said, well, if I knew where it was at, it would help. <laughs> you sent me somewhere in the Caribbean. Just, yeah. just head this way. We'll That's find right. It. And you sent me a ticket. But the the great part of that to me was eight wonderful days with you and your family. And the night before, I left. Remember a little song that I wrote? I do. You invited me in. And you treated me like kin You've given me a reason to go home You're my old friend Thanks for inviting me in My Never mean the end If we never meet again This side of life In a little while Over yonder Where is peace and quiet My Don't you think about me every now The next morning, I was scheduled to leave flying again in a little single-engine air- aircraft. I sang. He said, Carl, it's beautiful. Would, would you sing it again? And I said, sure, man. He said, wait, wait just a minute. And he got Linda in there, and they sat on the floor. I sat on his old Fender twin reverb amplifier with a guitar. I did, however, notice a microphone over there. I didn't pay that much attention to it, but George Martin recorded it. And after I finished singing the song to Paul, he was crying. Tears were rolling down his pretty cheeks and they're pretty to me, just like they are to the rest of the world. I think he's a very handsome boy and always did. He's even handsomer when he's crying. (laughs) I love that little detail. It's so sweet. sweet. Yeah. Genuine and sweet. 
And Linda said, Carl, thank you so much. I said, Linda, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you cry. She said, but he's crying and he needed to. He hasn't been able to really break down since that happened to John. I mean, he stepped outside the room out, out by the pool and he just had his handkerchief out and he was going at it. And she put her arm around me and said, but how did you know? I said, know what, Linda? I don't know what you're talking about. She said, there's only two people in the world that know what John Lennon said to Paul. The last thing he said to him. Me and Paul are the only two that know that. But now there's three and one of them's you. You know it. I said, girl, you're freaking me out. I don't know what you're talking about. She said, the last words that John Lennon said to Paul in the hallway of the Dakota building were, he patted him on the shoulder and said, think about me every now and then, old friend. Uh, she said, here you are. That's what you just sang. And how did you know? And I said, I didn't know. Gosh, I, I didn't know it. But Paul McCartney really feels that Lennon sent me that song. He really does. Oh, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And like, I understand why Paul would feel like John sent him that song. As we said, it's their hero. They both love him. It's, yeah. it's weird that this is two months later and one of Paul's guests just comes down and sings a song with that line. <laughs> Randomly on his way out of town. Right. And like, first of all, Carl Perkins sounds like the sweetest guy of all time, but it's a really phenomenal story, but it tells us, it gives us this piece of information that now and then was one of the things or the last thing that John said to him. Yeah. Yeah. Confirmed by Linda. Confirmed by Linda. Exactly. And so it's an incredibly meaningful phrase between them. So can you imagine when Paul got a tape, the cassettes from Yoko, and one of them's called Now and Then? So that's then the third time this phrase has come up for Paul. Yeah, John says it, and then Carl sings it to him, and then he gets the cassette. I mean, that's from another world. It really is. And Carl actually makes that point that he says, you know, if you don't think Paul is connected to the spiritual world then you're crazy, you know, yeah. it's ba basically what he said. Yeah. Well, there, there's another quote just a little bit later on in that goldmine article. Later, Perkins played the song to George Harrison. Well, Paul has told me, Harrison said, John will come back. There'll be another thing that'll hit you someday. And so you can see that Paul really believes in the spiritual world. Yeah. And that John is around. So I think working on these songs is probably a deeply spiritual thing to Paul. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, he thinks the white peacock that showed up when they were doing anthology was John. Yeah. Well, you know, in real love, we were talking so much about John and Paul both, especially John in that song, kind of processing these thoughts of uncertainty and are we sure this was real you know was it real was it just a dream I feel like maybe working on these songs for Paul is like confirmation for Paul that it was real that's his like yes moment yes getting these is like insight into John's soul yeah 
And you see something shift in Paul in terms of how he talks about John. In the mid-80s, which we're very deeply into, he's a little bit aloof to John. You know, he, he loves John, but it feels like he got confused by John and isn't quite sure yeah. about who John became. Yeah, definitely and feels like some disconnect there, emotional disconnect. Emotional disconnect, exactly. A little bit of a wall that is built up from the shenanigans in the 70s. Whereas Paul seems to soften about John, the way he speaks about John in the 90s. And it could be working on anthology, but it could also be getting these songs and, you know, getting a little bit of insight into, like, John was was thinking about him all the time, you yeah. know? And yeah. he also struggled and wanted to believe. Like, the interesting thing about getting that last version of Real Love, like, Paul gets it in that format that is saying to him and to George and Ringo, yes, it was real love. Yeah. I believe, you know? So it's kind of getting these tapes in some way, I think, feels like confirmation for Paul. Like, it was real and it was real for John too. Right. Then we get to this last song. He gets this tape. Uh, now and then, you know, immediately that title is meaningful to Paul. And it's interesting because we had that story from Linda. And so we know now and then is is meaningful. But the thing about that is that the way it's positioned, like something didn't sit, sit right for me when hearing that account, because that sort of portrays the John and Paul relationship as really at peace, that they had totally moved on, that John, you know, put his hand on Paul and said, if you can spare a thought, spare a thought for me, you know, remember me once in a while. Sounds like a wrapping up. like they Yes. Like they're both completely at peace, that they've yeah. completely moved on. And that is so not the case yes. of the situation, you know, that they are moving closer to working together one day. They're relitigating their breakup the next day. Paul's on TV and he gets read some insult that John has said. So like they're hot and cold every single day. It's the constant Lennon-McCartney dance every day. Exactly. The thing is, they're very passionate because they're competitive and they love each other so much. And it's a a very heady brew that results in this really volatile relationship. And fundamentally, they needed to, I believe, spend some really good time to just communicate stuff to each other. Yeah, like learn each other again. Yeah, and get some clarity about, you know... John, why did you do this? And John could ask, like, why did you walk away? And Paul could say, like, did you really want the divorce? And they could have just gotten some stuff out, which because it seems like the divorce, the breakup of the Beatles really was the result of spiraling miscommunications and hurts. And I do believe it was not an outcome that any of them wanted. And it was essentially a mistake. John said that that essentially it was a mistake that they didn't mean to do. And then the 70s is the process of them tentatively making steps back back towards each other, but they all have such massive egos. And they're all so insecure because they care so much that it makes it very difficult. And they've got eyes on them constantly. Oh my gosh, the pressure of just the press and people wanting things from the expectations. Yeah. I mean, Yoko makes that point in the St. Regis article. She talks about the fact that bands break up all the time, but then they're able to get back together. 
And nobody notices, but because the beetles are so under the microscope and everything's so high pressure that it makes it really difficult to walk back things, which was really insightful. And I think it suggests that she is well aware that the beetles probably would have gotten back together if everything hadn't been exacerbated by the news that makes it really difficult for them to walk back things and yeah. without losing face. Yeah. But the, the point is, is that that didn't sound like John and Paul. I mean, it could have been John fronting and just seeming like the cool buddy saying, think about me. Don't forget about me. You know what I picture? I picture John doing that in like one of his voices, like a funny bit or something. Yes, yes, yes. Think about me. Yes, exactly. Now and then. My old friend. But one of the things that we thought about was, is that code? Because it just is such an odd statement, given the fact that they were talking about reconciling. Like, it just doesn't fit with two guys that are on the precipice of writing together, that have plans to potentially do a performance for a movie, the, the anthology that are both going to work on Ringo's album. Like, it just doesn't make sense in that context. So we started to think about, like, could this be code and refer to something? And so we started to dig and we found something. So we have this insight that we believe the love language between John and Paul or the code between John and Paul is to refer to the songs of their youth. And there's many accounts. There's this Colin Hall book where he talks about all the time that they spent listening together to various songs and how important that these shared songs are. And so that is kind of our insight into, well, let's look at the songs that they might have um, might be referring to. And my go-to always is Elvis first yes. and Buddy Holly. I always look up like, okay, is there any Elvis song from 1957, you know, 58, 59 times when they would have been spending time together listening to these albums? And then if not Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, and I, I wouldn't have thought of the Shangri-Las, but uh, turns out they were a gold mine too. Yeah, they were. They were. So you found a song that has a connection. I did. So I started to dig into old songs. And it turned out that there was actually an Elvis B-side called Now and Then There's a Fool Such as I. And I was like, an Elvis (laughs) B-side. Right. And we know that the Beatles were always looking for B-sides. Exactly. The little known B-sides. If I'm sentimental, when we say goodbye, don't be angry with me, should I cry? When you're gone, yet I dream a little, dream as years go by, now and then there's a fool such as I.
And so do you want to go over uh, some of the, the lyrics from that? Yeah, it's got some of those key words that we we suspect might be code between John and Paul sometimes. Now and then there's a fool such as I. Pardon me if I'm sentimental when we say goodbye. Don't be angry with me should I cry. When you're gone, yet I'll dream a little dream as years go by. Now and then there's a fool such as I. And then the next verse is... Uh, You taught me how to love, and now you say that we are through. I'm a fool, but I'll love you, dear, until the day I die. Now and then there's a fool such as I. Right. There are words that we think are meaningful. Again, this is kind of going into the extreme speculative world. But there seems to be important words that they repeat or put in songs that seem to be for each other. Fool being one of the words that repeats. There is the dream, of course. We've got the now and then. Dear, dear comes up a lot. I mean, dear is a is a term that was used all the time, term term of affection that was used all the time then. But it comes up like we've got dear boy, we've got dear friend. John in 1980 calls Paul his dear one. In other words, looking at this song and hearing that John said, think of me now and then, (laughs) the way Paul McCartney's brain works, I, I can imagine that he would immediately go to that song. An Elvis B-side. An Elvis B-side that he knows very well. And then, so I don't know if John's just kind of referencing that kind of thing for fun, or if, as we said before, it's kind of like, look to this song to see what I really mean. Yeah, to see how I really feel. Yeah. Pardon me if I'm sentimental when we say goodbye. Don't be angry with me should I cry when you're gone, yet I'll dream a little dream as years go by. And then again, this this has the, you taught me how to love, and now you say we're through, dear. I'm a fool, but I'll love you, dear, until the day I die. That's the consistent belief that John has about the way that things went down. Yeah, yeah. That that he was left. Yeah, that he was left, but that he still loves you. Yeah, so that has some connection. Uh, maybe, maybe. But I, I think that they, they both would be very aware of this so if we look at the actual now and then lyrics I know it's true, it's all because of you. And if I make it through, it's all because of you. Now and then, if we start again, we will know for sure that I love you. I don't want to lose you, abuse you, or confuse you. Oh, no, no, sweet darling. But if you have to go, now and then, I miss you. Oh, now and then, I want you to return to me. And I know it's true, it's all because of you. And if you go away, I know you could never stay. Now and then, I miss you. Oh, now and then, I want you to return to me. If we must die
We're not sure about some of the words because some of them are pretty muffled. I, I assume we'll hear the clear words in the final version. But in terms of, this could apply to Yoko, first of all. I just want to say it could be sure. A, about nothing and John just writing a song that sure. gets his feelings out. There are some accounts that John and Yoko were very up and down during this period. We don't, it's hard to pin down anything for sure, but certainly we do know that they went through some up and downs at this time. So it certainly could just be about Yoko. You know, certainly the, I know it's true, it's all because of you. And if I make it through, it's all because of you. Yeah. Sounds like the type of thing that he said publicly about Yoko. Yeah, exactly. Like that's kind of how he communicates about her. Yeah, that's, he gives full credit to her all the time. And I do think he believes that, actually, that Yoko is responsible for saving him when he yeah. was really down, for championing him, for saving him, for inspiring him, for making him feel loved. You know, I yeah. don't want to downplay the John and Yoko story, but I don't think it has to be an either or. I, I really and truly believe that Paul McCartney absolutely adores Linda. Yeah. And his kids. But I still think he absolutely loves John. Like there's room for both. And sometimes in the Lennon world, it seems like it can only be one or the other. And it doesn't have to be. John can have yeah. feelings for both of them. And we were talking about the fact that even though it seems like that's the kind of statement John would make, we also think that this may be something that John deeply believes when it comes to Paul. It's not something that he would say publicly, but I do believe that I know it's true. It's all because of you. Like the fact that John knows how impactful Paul was to his life, to his career. Recently, yeah. Paul just was asked like, who is the most impactful person to you? And he mentions John and it's the same for John. It's like these guys made each other. They talk about it in the Hunter Davies book that when they met each other, that's when things started moving. Yeah. Yeah. That's when things took off. And, you know, I think that you do get the sense that John realizes how, um, how important Paul was. I think that was his great fear. In fact, I think that's what he's terrified of is that, Oh, maybe it's all attributable. Yeah. Or maybe this dream is more McCartney than me. Yes. Yeah. Linda and Yoko gave them second lives, but they became who they were together. I, I think they also gave each other a lot of life and purpose and energy at a time, like pivotal moments in each other's lives. That's a wonderful point. They saw each other. They saw something in the other that excited them and made them see a different world and made it seem possible. Both of those young men needed something, you needed know, something. they kind of exactly. needed something to... I don't know, to excite them. To heal them. To heal them, yeah. And not only heal them, but to set them on their course. You know, they both yeah. talk about like their life started moving. It like gave yeah. them purpose. And all of a sudden they had a joint mission. Yeah. And they were all powerful, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like when they see each other and once they really get to know each other and spend time together, it's like, oh, this was the thing I was looking for. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't even know it. Yeah. I think it was uh, Catelyn Moran who said yeah. it was the, they were the thing that the other was looking for. And they really were. Yeah. And then the chorus is, and now and then, if we must start again, 
well, we will know for sure that I love you. And so this idea of and now and then if we must start again is very similar to the song Starting Over, which came out the next year in Double Fantasy. And I think that there is absolutely no way that that isn't at least partly from McCartney. Yes, there are a lot of McCartney shout outs in that song. (laughs) (laughs) There are. I mean, and there's one section where he says, it's time to spread our wings and fly. So there we get the wings again. Don't let another day, which is McCartney's first single, go by my love, which is another McCartney single. It'll be just like starting over. In the earlier iterations of this song, he talks about why don't we do it in the road, and he talks about the walrus, which he has attributed to both him and Paul. And so there just seems to be a lot of links. One of the other links um, I've heard mentioned is the jet engine, very reminiscent of back in the USSR. Why don't we take off alone? It reminds me of why don't we do it in the road? Well, and he did sing that, why don't we do it in the road, in the earlier version, yeah. And then he uses their their words, darling. Nice and easy is like, all you need is love. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah, Yeah, he says that very similarly. And what does he say when he's he's recording it? He's doing it in the Elvis Orbison or something like... The, The Orbison 50s style, yeah. Exactly. And so who would know that? Who, you know, it'd be odd if John was writing a love song to Yoko... Um, in the 50s style. In the 50s style. That's more his partner's style. And to me, this song just seems like it's consistent with what we were talking about, which was that there was legitimately some movement towards reconciling and working together in one capacity or another. Yeah. And so, you know, Paul, we think coming up, yeah. has some shout outs to John. And it excited John, partly musically. But partly, I have to assume, he heard the shout-outs, too, that yeah. Paul is potentially giving a shout-out to John in the song, singing, it's coming up, maybe maybe we can work together. And then John responds with this song. And yeah. apparently, John was really keen to know whether Paul had heard this song. Yeah. It was really important for him to hear whether Paul had heard the song, and he was trying to get information on what Paul thought about it. Which is so sweet. Yeah. Did they get the message? Did they get it? Did they understand it? Yeah. Interestingly, and, and kind of tragically and sadly, there is an account. I don't know if it's, you know, there's so many of these things are urban myths, so I don't know. But there is an account in a book that after John died, Paul played this song repeatedly. Yeah. Which, if true, suggests that he heard the message. Yeah, he got the message. Another thing that's kind of interesting now that I'm looking at the lyrics, you know, we talked about with real love. John becomes very confident and like emphatic. Yes. 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 It's love. And this is a, this song comes from a very confident standpoint too. 
let's take a chance and fly away. It's like he's making a decision. Yes. Yes. It's like Paul puts out songs that are kind of flirtatious and it's like, hey, hey, John over here. And then John, when he engages, his tend to be much more like, okay, let's do it. Like, all right, you want to do this? Let's start over. You know, like, why don't we take off alone, take a trip somewhere far, far away. We'll be together all alone again, just like we used to in the early days. I mean, you know, the early days is the name of a Paul song where exactly. he seems yeah. to be talking about John. And so I'm not sure if John and Yoko talk about the early days, but certainly Paul and John took off to Paris in the early days. Yeah. And also what's interesting to, to me is he says, it's been too long since we took the time. No one's to blame. It's like, he's not going to concede that he was wrong. But he will concede that no one's to blame, that let's forget about it. Let's just move on, you know? Let's just let it go. Let's move on. And then he says, we have grown. We have grown. Although our love is still special, let's take a chance to fly away somewhere. And that reminds me of Yoko's quote about him thinking it was the time for the Beatles to get back together because they had all sort of matured and grown. Yeah. So who knows? We're just reading into it. But we're reading into it based on what we know about the context. We know about where John was at. We know some of the songs that end the shout out to Wings and all these kinds of things that indicate it could have a connection to Paul. So when we look at Now and Then, and it's also got this, and Now and Then, If We Must Start Again, it's a similar type thought. It's less confident than Starting Over, which was developed the next year. I feel like in starting over, he's like, all right, I'm ready to throw down. Yep. The invitation is there. And again, it's always difficult because all of these situations seem to be applicable to Paul or Yoko because, you know, John and Yoko are struggling at this time. So, and they, the kind of the story that they came out with for double fantasy was that they had been struggling, but they had found themselves again when reignited the passion. So And now and then, if we must start again, that could easily apply to her as well. Sure. But then also this line, he says, I want you to return to me till you return to me. I know it's true. It's all because of you. And if you go away, I know you could never stay. does actually, when you dig into, you know, the behaviors of the Beatles, Paul does seem to be the one that comes and goes a lot more. I mean, again, not our impression of them, but John is the one that is more solid and he stays in one place and Paul sort of flits in and out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, it seems like at this point, John's a little bit more accepting, like, okay, I know you might need to do that, but I also know that you never stay away. Forever. Forever. Exactly. So it's sort of an understanding of maybe this is the way that we could work together again. Yeah. It again has that self-soothing vibe to it. Like John's talking himself through 
this feeling, this scenario. Well, I know you'll never stay away forever. Yeah. And I know that you might go away, but that doesn't mean that I need to panic and that you'll never come back because I know you'll come back. Yeah. And the return to me, it also sounds like that possessive part of John that he talks about. That's a great point. That possessiveness that he loves someone or something. He'll love them so much that he smothers them because he's scared of losing them. But I feel like in this song, it's like he's recognizing that possessive part, but he's trying to talk himself through it and like, but I know you're going to come back. That that turn of phrase was interesting to me too. I want you to return to me. It is possessive. It's not like I want us to reconcile. I want us to get back together. Let's be friends again. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's also return to me. You are mine, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, It does have that possessive element, but it also suggests that somebody went away, left him. Yeah, yeah. And so when we look at the song from that perspective, that is how John talks about the breakup. Weirdly, in the 70s, he feels like he was left. Despite everything that he says publicly, when you look at his deeper interviews, the things that he says that when... He seems to have this idea that somebody left him. Yeah. I mean, Yoko hasn't left him. Maybe emotionally, but she hasn't left him. Yeah. And it feels like in the Beatles breakup, so many of his reactions are due to his belief that someone is leaving him, has left him. When you think of the myth of the partnership that he goes on about, you think about like, um, I don't believe in the Beatles, the... How do you sleep? I mean, these all reflect like a deep disillusionment and, and sadness. Yeah. And yeah, what the hell people attribute that to? That suggests a deep wound versus yeah. whatever the hell they usually think, like Paul writing Maxwell Silver Hammer or something like that, or John needing freedom or whatever the hell stupid reason they gave. Those aren't what's making John say the myth of our partnership. And we stopped writing in 1962, you know? Yeah. Maxwell Silver Hammer is not the problem. <laughs> exactly. So we can just mark, we'll just mark that off the list of possibilities. Exactly. How do you sleep writing Maxwell Silver Hammer? <laughs> this suggests a deep, deep connection to somebody who he wants to come back. And, you know, we've got Giles Martin saying to him, who has been as deeply involved in the Beatles music as possible, to him, it sounds like a love letter from John to Paul. And then when we take a step back and we sort of see the themes of it, that missing somebody wants somebody to come back, that they know how important this person is and doesn't want to lose them again. Yeah. And I think, I think Paul's reaction from what we have read and heard, how hard he's worked on this and how committed he's been to this song and how much he's wanted to do this song. I think that suggests he heard John's message. He did. He misses John too. Well, that's the thing is that he can't ever respond to John and say, I feel like that too. He can't say that except for spiritually and through song. And so now if he sings this, he is saying it to John in a way. Yeah. Uh, On one of your episodes, I think you guys were talking about an early song one day and you said that it was John singing the song, but like when Paul comes in, it feels like, 
yeah, what John said's right. <laughs> I'm on his side. And it's it feels like that. It's like when they sing together, the message is coming from both of them. And it feels like it's about both of them. Well, it is. I think that was Tell Me Why or something like that. Was it? Or yeah, maybe yeah. it was No Reply. Oh, I don't know. It, it, could be, it could be one of the many early songs because that's the thing is part of the allure of the Beatles is we feel the love of and the friendship of the guys underneath it. Yeah. Like their joy, their love, all of that. And here it's just a forlorn song of John singing. I mean, I think Paul would have heard and, and it must have been soothing to know that, ah, he felt like this. He loved me. Yeah. I felt like this as well. And they yeah. were never able to have that conversation as, as far as we know. But when they both sing it together, it is like a hymn. It's like, if I fell. It's basically yeah. like the equivalent of, if I fell years later, you know? Yeah. Now and then, yeah. I miss you. Yeah. because Paul wouldn't do that. He would never say that to the world, that, you know what, I love this song, I think it was to me. He would yeah. just never say that. Yeah, that's and not so him. It's not him, I wish it was him, because our view of their relationship and partnership would be much more equal. Right yeah. now it seems so unbalanced of what essentially was a very equal, very intense, profound relationship between these men. Yeah. I think these songs are such an excellent, amazing peek into that in, from John's side. Exactly. When John wasn't fronting, when John wasn't trying to play the role of a narrative that they have decided, this is behind the scenes. John was missing them. Yeah. I feel like these songs are consistent with what you hear behind the scenes about John. I think that's kind of what May has communicated to us. And oh, Jack very Douglas. much so. But yeah, and it's interesting because, as you said at the beginning, Paul will say things like, oh, no, John, after he left, he never looked back. And you yeah. know, we know that's blatantly untrue. We could highlight interviews that Paul gave in the early 80s that refute that. But at some point, he just takes that stance and tells that story. Yeah. And I don't know we, why. And we know we know he knows some other parts of the story. But. We know he knows. Maybe he doesn't even care about the story being righted. Maybe he just wants to have a song where they're singing this to each other publicly. I think he might. And and I was going to say, I think like these are hard words for John to say. I mean, it's, it's hard for both of them to communicate, but that's because it matters so much. You know, if this were just a pointless relationship, you wouldn't be sitting in a room like, feeling lonely and bummed that you're missing your person and you want them to return to you. That's a big deal. And it's like, John said that publicly in Newsweek. Yeah, I miss Paul. So it's like, we're not just making up this. It's like, he's yeah. putting it out there. And Paul's writing arrow through me that might be partly to John. You know what I mean? Like they're both feeling this way. And George is putting it out in 78 that Ringo and I would be willing to get back together. And so even though this particular, like, I feel like George 
you know, even though I think his primary objections were technical, I'm sure they were technical. He doesn't want to put out shit. But also, I sort of feel like part of him is kind of like, oh, Jesus Christ, this is about them. Yeah. You know, and maybe either he thought this was about John and Yoko and he's like, yep, yeah, no. Or else he, he realized it was about Paul and John. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad way to be ending the story of the Beatles because that was the relationship that was so blown up in the breakup of the Beatles. So it's kind of like the thing that also needs to be healed yeah. in the story of the Beatles is the John and Paul relationship. Yeah. Because anybody who watches Get Back is like, oh, oh yeah, okay, that's right. Lennon and McCartney are really intensely connected and yeah. Yeah. they are what blew up in, in the breakup because yeah. John still works with Ringo and, and George. And this one, it's healing. It's letting us all know, no, no, the love was still there between John and Paul too. Yeah. And how beautiful it is that Paul was able to get the message. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is about McCartney, especially right now, is he is very unable to receive. He's been the, the voice of the narrator for so yeah. long. And I think he sees it as his role to make sure that everybody who has passed gets attention and gets love. So he talks about George. He talks about George Martin. He talks about John. Like the McCartney 321 special, as lovely as it was, it was frustrating because it was supposed to be about Paul and his bass playing. And it yeah. was like every time Rick Rubin would want to talk about something that Paul did, he couldn't do it. I think it's his yeah. upbringing. It's kind of like the fact that he's talking about his beloved bandmates that are gone or even Ringo, who he feels like still needs to be celebrated. Like he turns it and talks about them. He seems to have a hard time just accepting it and being like, yeah, these guys did love me. Or yeah, that was a pretty fantastic thing I did. And of course, it is hard to do that. Like I understand he is, you know, he was called an egomaniac forever. So it's really hard for him to be like, yeah, I am awesome. But but in some ways, it, it is skewing the story. It is. Yeah. Like in the early 80s, he would always say, yeah, I, I think we were equal. And we both sort of thought that we were equally talented. And yeah. I think that John really impacted me, but I think I really impacted John. He said that a lot at first. He did. And he just stopped saying it eventually. Yeah. And it was like a, a fight he, he couldn't win. And so I think he just gave up and he was like, okay, I'm just a, I'm just a fan and I'm going to talk about them. But it, it never gives us the opportunity to look at the tremendous love that the other guys had for Paul. And that's important. Like, I have, a, I have a fear that Paul in this discussion is going to make it all about him wanting to say that to John, which is fine. But just let's give it a moment to John, because I think that's what's less known, you know? Right. He just doesn't know how to give himself enough credit or celebrate himself, or he doesn't feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, yeah. But I think that was part of the problem in the breakup of the Beatles was that they thought he felt too good about himself. Right, right. I mean, they were all upset because they really fucking cared a lot. And they saw Paul as so powerful that they went out and bitched about him. They thought they couldn't hurt him. And they did. And so now it's nice to have something like this. Because usually it's Paul who gives the compliments and the love and shines the light on everyone else. I would love for the documentary and all the celebrations this week to end with Paul just being able to receive yes. the love letter from John. 
Yeah. And maybe he won't admit that or say that. I'm sure hell would have to freeze over for him to like well, that's say thing. that publicly. But I wish he would because I think he knows that that's the truth. And I think that's why he put so much time and effort and commitment into this. When it makes me think of the fact that in 1970, you know, he was just like, I'm paraphrasing here, but if you want to know about what I think, look to my music. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's the thing is like, Paul will never say this publicly. John adored me. Look, I can only talk about my love. I don't want to presume to know John. But you know what? I'm going to make sure this song gets out there. And you can look to our music in the future. If you want to know about our story, it's there. It's all there. And so these are the songs that they left. This This is the history that they left. We don't know for sure what any of these things mean, but this is our interpretation. And I think that there's support to suggest that the love was still there. Uh, Let me just return to what Giles said. Here's the thing about the Beatles. They had a heartbeat to them. They were four hearts. They would beat as one in different rhythms. And it's really important to retain that. There's a fragility to this record, which needs to be there. The fragility is the human part. If you try and iron out everything, you end up with a very bland experience. The key to this production was not to add anything that takes away from the humanity of it. And then the interviewer says, and in the end, what did the Beatles mean? And he could have answered, the love you take is equal to the love you make, but he didn't. He said, friendship is as good an answer as any. Even in Get Back, which is meant to depict the acrimonious Beatles, you can see the love they have for each other and the need they have for each other. The split needed to happen for various reasons, but you get a sense of how painful it had to be. I don't think either one ever looked for another John Lennon or Paul McCartney. They knew there wasn't one. And so this does seem like a love letter to Paul, to me. It feels like this is the Beatles' last song. It sounds like how the Beatles would do it now had they all been alive. I think that makes it more real. I hope it touches people. because in 1966, John said that really all he and Paul were trying to do was to try and convey a feeling. He told Spin Magazine that when Paul and I write a song, we try and take hold of something we believe in, a truth. We can never communicate 100% of what we feel, but if we can convey just a fraction, we have achieved something. We try and give people a feeling. They don't have to understand the music if they can just feel the emotion. And so after all of this analysis and background, I think that Lennon and McCartney and Harrison and Starr would be happy if we just sort of try and feel the emotion. And what I personally feel here in this song, in all of these songs, all three of these songs, is longing and love and hope. You know what I mean? Yeah. An offering. An offering. And it could apply to Yoko. It could apply to Paul. It could apply to the Beatles as a whole. And that's how I take it. I think all of them are in that. And so for me, it's such a beautiful ending because the Beatles 
the official Beatles canon in terms of singles ended with The Long and Winding Road, which is beautiful. I love it, but it's also sad. It's Paul sort of saying to the universe, to whoever, he's looking for a direction. And like, please lead me to your door. And he's standing there. You know what I mean? It's so, yeah. it's, it's uncertain. Show me the way. Lead me to your door. It's unresolved. And I think it reflects the unresolved situation with Lennon and McCartney and the Beatles. You know, it's like something that was so beautiful. Just he and he keeps trying and he can't resolve it. And in the McCartney series that we are coming up with and are working on right now, we talk about the fact that they really hit an impasse and Paul doesn't know how to resolve it. And I think John didn't know how to resolve it and nor did Ringo or George. And so there was an explosion. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And they didn't really have people around to help them put it back together. And here now and then is, and it to me, it's like Lennon with an extended hand saying, I'm here. I miss you. And I want you to return to me. It's like after all the bitterness and hurt and fighting that went on at the end of the day, the love is still there. Yeah. And, and it's like a healing and come back. It is the full circle that they talk about. And so McCartney in adding his voice is saying like, I feel like that too. I wanted that too. Yeah. I'm so glad you felt that way too, John. Yeah. And we've got Ringo also singing. And now we've got through the magic and spirit of technology, George is too. Yeah. And George would never want to be left behind. He wouldn't. Because I do believe George felt like that too. You know, we've got the interview with him in, in the 70s saying that he is willing to do the Beatles. And throughout his life, he had a grudging love. Like when we was fab to me, there is a longing for it and a recognition of how incredible it was. George loves, loves so, those guys. He does love those guys. But I think Frieza Bird and Real Love really probably are about the Beatles story. And, and like Giles, I personally think this is really a song between John and Paul. From John to Paul. Yeah. And I hope Paul can just receive it despite all of the bullshit that's going to be thrown his way of like, he's changing the story and he didn't love Paul anymore, whatever. I think that this is a love letter from Lennon that is he's cosmically sending to McCartney. And I hope that can just be recognized as much as like we immediately go there to, we want Paul to say, I heard you, John, and I feel that way too. Like we want it to complete it. But Paul's been standing there for a long time saying, I love John. I miss him. And I personally just want a space and time where we acknowledge John's feelings too. That John missed Paul just as much. And with John, you always have to look behind the scenes. Can't take him at face value. Yeah, exactly. We've gone to great pains to say that John fronts and that there was a public side and a at private side. And these demos tell the private side that are his real emotions And And if anyone knows that, it's Paul McCartney. (laughs) Yeah, and Yoko Ono. And the fact that she allowed these songs to come out, I really do think it was a lovely and generous action on her part. Like, I think that Yoko has done a lot to tell the story of Lennon and Ono, almost to the expense of the Beatles. And yet, despite her desire to do so, there was a very generous, kind part of her that gave these demos to Paul and George and Ringo and said, I think it's just part of her that knows that's part yeah. of the story. It's like when she told Norman 
when she admitted that actually John really, really was brokenhearted about Paul and really cared. And I couldn't understand his upset. Like it, it seemed bigger than I realized. Like, I don't think she meant to say that, but also she's putting it into the world because it's part of John's story. And, you know, so some part of her is allowing this story to be. Yeah. And And to her credit, you know, Paul asked for space and um, patience and this was going to be difficult for them. This was going to be emotional. And I think she gave them the space. You know, I think she let them handle the songs. I think she trusted them to handle the songs in a way that would be respectful to John. Right. For example, with Risa Bird, she didn't jump in and, you know, John says, whatever happened to the life that we once knew? And Paul responds, can we really live without each other? And, you know, Yoko didn't go into war with them and say, no, 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 that Frieza bird, that was about him. And it really doesn't apply to Yoko. But she doesn't challenge that it wasn't about them or real love. I mean, they never really tied it to them. But she could have gone out and said, these songs are all about me. But she doesn't because she doesn't know either. Yeah. Yeah. So they that, seem like very specific songs to seem, have been given to this group of people that John loves so dearly. I don't think that this song or even our understanding that this song might be about the Beatles or it might be about Paul, I don't think it undermines the John and Yoko story. All these love stories can exist at the same time because they were all different kinds of love. And yeah. Yoko has even said about this song that she thought it would be healing for the Beatles to do it. Yeah, which is very different than if she had said, this song was about John and I when we were going through a rocky bit in our marriage. Yes. She could have said that. She could have said that, and she didn't. Working on these songs really was healing for Paul and George and Ringo, both in terms of their relationships, but maybe their understanding of where John was at and how how much he loved and missed them too. And I hope that it can be healing for the rest of the world who loved the Beatles and loved their love story as well. Oh, uh, one more thing. There is art cover work uh, done by Ed Rocher, and that is proving to be just as controversial as everything about this song. (laughs) Man, man, Beatles fans love to bitch. Um, It's a pretty interesting choice, the Ed Rocher, in that he has a connection to McCartney. And he's a very famous surrealist artist. Like for anybody who thinks that this was just a bad choice, it was a very purposeful choice. McCartney yeah. has always had interest in the cover art for the Beatles, and this is no different. And so this time they chose Ed Rocher, who is a famous pop artist, surrealist, print artist. He's done all kinds of things that are incredibly famous. I think he did the um, the Hollywood sign, in fact, the standard sign like if you dig into him he's like the coolest guy in fact I think he was part of something called the cool school which is like the best name ever and he was part of the west coast art movement and he's very important to McCartney personally in that this is a story that I guess Nancy commissioned him to do a piece of art that said for life which is based on a song that McCartney wrote about Nancy, that my Valentine, there's a promise of he will love her for life. And so she commissioned this and had a piece of art done that said for life, which is so incredibly romantic, I think, don't you think? Oh my goodness. It's beautiful. Yeah. They, 
That seems like they're very in love. I love that for them. It does. And that's the thing is McCartney looks so happy these days. He looks so happy with her. They're an adorable couple. She takes good care of him. He apparently loves taking care of her. Like, I, I just love that McCartney has this late life romance. He's yeah. had great romances in his life. You know, it's very sad digging into the story of Lennon and McCartney and the Beatles and Lennon's tragic murder. And Paul's dealt with it all well. He had a great, great love story with Linda and so tragic that she died so young. But so right. it's so lovely that he can celebrate his story with the Beatles and Lennon, as well as being incredibly happy these days. Yeah. When he and Nancy are together, there's often been some little videos the last few months where they're dancing like teenagers. Like they, they just are. look like they kind of light each other up. And I love that. Of course, Paul's going to love this end to a great love story of him and the Beatles or of Lennon and the Beatles. And yeah. I'm thrilled that he is putting this out into the world. I can't wait to hear the, the music. I like the now and then. Somebody matched it up to the photo, the retrospective photo of the Beatles looking over the baluster for the 62 and the, the um, 69. And apparently the lines match up to that, which is really cool. Cool. I'm sure it has great significance. I thought that was super cool how they matched it up to those kind of full circle photos. Yeah. And actually, he's got a piece of art called The End that it, it looks like it could be a companion piece to that. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? Like his art could be having a conversation with this as well. He's got a piece called The End that is really, this is the end in terms of singles for the Beatles. So yeah. McCartney being an insider. Very similar to, colors. Yeah. Yes. Yes. McCartney being an insider to his work might have wanted there to be a conversation between those two and you're right it, the colors are the same the mood is the same I mean it, why don't you do you like it it's growing on me it's growing on me a lot I mean I have to say I was one of the people who was unsure when I first saw it um I just didn't know to me the colors didn't quite match up with like my idea of the Beatles like I usually think of brighter more vibrant colors and the light blue and the grayish. I don't know. It gave me more of a 80s vibe than what I would associate with 60s Beatles. But the more I've looked at it, you can kind of see the light blue fading to gray, which gives me this feeling of like days gone by. And I think that's added a lot of meaning to it. So it's growing on me. To me, it reflects the mood of the song. I like it. I like it more knowing, ha having looked at the end, but I do think it needs yeah. to stand on its own. Like, despite the fact that it may have been influenced by the photo of the Beatles in front of the railing and the baluster, I mean, that does enhance my, my liking of it or my, my love for it is knowing that maybe that was an inspiration, but it has to work outside of that. And I like it. It's just, I think the problem is it's just different. It's just it's different. different. Like it is, it's a memory. It's a song from the seventies. It's kind of faded. I found what was intriguing was the reflection. Like there seems to be a bit of a, a reflection and it's a different reflection than the actual words. So it kind of is referring yeah. to something. It'll be interesting to hear what we hear about it as background. I like it. I think like we often associate pictures of the Beatles themselves with their um, album artwork and this doesn't have any photos of the Beatles. So I think that might be why it's a little bit strikingly different too. 
That's a great point because they couldn't have a proper photo. It would just would have been a collage right. of photos, and it, there's nothing representative. That it's like, what do they put? A picture of John in the '70s, and that wouldn't yeah. have worked. But also, like, Ruche is known. His artwork, he says, he treats words like his subject, and yeah. the now and then is so meaningful in this story. Like the actual words now and then are so meaningful that he made that the center of it, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, very John and Paul too. I think they use their words to communicate. I mean, I think they use words and lyrics to communicate and convey how they feel about the world with each other. So yeah, that yeah, makes you're sense. Right. The code of now and then. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we think, anyways. So now all we have to do is actually listen to the song. So we will be back as soon as possible with thoughts on the documentary. With thoughts on, <laughs> I hope that nothing in the documentary totally undermines this whole discussion, but I don't think it will. But it'll be interesting to see how they frame it. It'll be interesting to see the music video. I suspect the music video will actually be a more profound story. Like I think there'll be more Easter eggs, more truth in the music video. Yeah, I have greater hopes. I'll put it that way for the music video because you know, as we said, the emotion, the real story is always in their music. Yeah, they've released like a, a short little snippet trailer with some banter and chatter between Paul, George, and Ringo uh, from the mid '90s sessions. And already, just hearing them talk in the studio kind of gives me chills. So I'm excited yeah. to see where that goes. So yeah, we'll be back when we get all of that. And thank you for listening to our speculation our point of view on this song and let us know what you think about this about the song about the documentary about the video about it all about the story of the beatles this is my perspective giles is right and how beautiful is that i think that's a pretty good way to end the beatles story listening as I finish editing this episode the song has dropped and we have thoughts so we will be back with those let us know what you think of the song the video the documentary I would love to hear your thoughts you can reach the podcast at once we dream podcast at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter at once we dream die or on instagram at once we dream podcast so Please follow us there, comment, send a message. We love to hear from you. And thank you. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a great review or rating. It really helps others who might like it find the podcast. And please share the podcast on social media if you're enjoying it. That would really help. Um, just a quick note that I am currently in the process of editing a couple of series for season three that will start as soon 
as possible. If I would make these episodes just a little bit shorter, I could get out there more quickly. Maybe I'll start to just break them down. But anyways, they're underway. We will get them to you as soon as possible. Thank you again for listening. Take care. I hope you're all enjoying the new Beatles goodies. And if not, (laughs) at least enjoy all of the discussion about it. And I want to just leave you with one really beautiful anecdote from Olivia Harrison, a little story that's on apparently the back cover of Now and Then. So many of you will know it, but I'll just share it just in case anyone doesn't. There's one final bit of happenstance. It's a clock featuring the words now and then created by an American artist called Chris Griffin, bought by George Harrison in 1997 from a shop in Providence, Rhode Island, and kept for years at the home he shared with his wife, Olivia. She recently decided to have a closer look at it. I put it on the mantelpiece, she said. Then the phone rang. It's Paul. And he begins to remind me of this third song with real love and free as a bird. I said, I remember it. He said, it's called now and then. I'm standing there with a phone in one hand, looking at the clock that said, now and then. I was just sort of dumbfounded. I said, I think this is George saying it's okay. So it seems like the Beatles magic is again at play. I mean, that's crazy, but it sounds like it was meant to be. Anyways, that's all. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Pardon me if I'm sentimental when we say goodbye. Don't be angry with me. Should I cry? When you go, yet I dream a little, dream as years go by. Now and then, there's a fool such as I.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.